The children are dismissed for Children's Church. If you're in that demographic, you can go on out. Children's Church, the rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13, we are essentially at Monday, Thursday. Sort of going back to the future here. John chapter 13, we see this idea of service. We see this wonderful picture that Jesus gives us of of who um, we are called to be. I was thinking about this. uh, I was talking to a a guy uh, in our church. I'm not gonna tell you who it is. Um, But he said it's, it's amazing to him that when he goes on a trip with his children, how um, they are, uh, when they say get into the car, that is children, three of which uh, fight for the edges of the seat and nobody wants to seat in the back seat of the middle, right? Like nobody wants to seat, sit back seat middle. And he said, I thought that at some point we may actually get to a place where our children might get to an age where that's not a big deal anymore. He goes, but man, I got 19, 20, 21 year old kids and they're still fighting about who is gonna be in the back seat. And I told him a story, in in college we had a a guy uh, named Matt, and Matt would always, whenever we would carpool anywhere, uh, most guys would say, shotgun, you know, you shotgun, you you wanna sit in the best seat, right? Well, he would always say, back seat middle. And we're like, what? He would say, back seat middle. I'm like, nobody's calling for back seat middle. But he would always say, don't take it, it's mine. And what he was doing there is he was saying that I want to be in the least place. And he was doing it as an act of service. And he never called shotgun. He, always, he would always call backseat middle. And in the midst of John chapter 13, we don't read it here, but in Luke chapter 22, we read about the disciples. And as the disciples are now assembling for the Passover meal, there's a discussion about them. And they're discussing, well, who's the best? Who's the greatest? You know, who speaks the best? Who, who is the one who will sit at Jesus' right hand and, and, and left hand? And Jesus tells a story to illustrate that it's not about leading, but rather it's about serving. And if you're um, not willing to serve, then you have no business leading at all. So in John chapter 13, Jesus uh, gives, gives us this, or John gives us this account of Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to read through verse 17 today. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God was going and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who, it, who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed it, their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, as we jump into this, uh, we see that Jesus now, uh, John has slowed down. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and the rest of the gospel of John will give us that account. And we see that they're at Passover. This is Jesus' third recorded Passover. And at the Passover, again, we're, we're seeing this feast of Passover. Everyone would gather together. Really, quite frankly, we see in front of us sort of what comes from Passover in the New Testament when we think about communion. That they're reminded of the way that they have been saved. Now, the, in the Old Testament, the grand redemptive event that occurred was the Exodus when, when God called the people out of slavery and he brought them to the promised land and he provided for them and sustained them and loved them. And so they celebrated that meal. It was um, ordained by God. And so Jesus is doing what God has called him to do, to remember and to celebrate God's redemption in the Old Testament. But what we see here is that at this particular account, Jesus is meeting with his disciples. And when Jesus knew Again, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or the NIV says, loved to the uttermost. So there's this, this and this is remarkable here. This is stunning. Jesus knows he has about six days left to live. Six days. And the way that he is actually going to respond to the disciples is not going to begin to check off the bucket list of all the things that he wanted to do, but he serves and he loves others. Now think about this. If you had a week to live, would your natural instinct be to serve others? Would that be what you would naturally do? Or would you think about myself and what I want to do, what I want to do and where I want to go. Matter of fact, there was a, you know, maybe you might go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, or go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I just made that up. I never heard that before. <laughs> but you know, what Jesus does, and again, this is remarkable, because he loves he now, now, love throughout the, the Bible is not just a feeling, it is an action. And it is a demonstration. And when Jesus says, I will love them, now again, it's, it's remarkable because he knows that he's about to depart out of the world. And having loved his own were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's this sense in which he is serving rather than being served. There's this 
this wonderful idea here that I will love them. And the way that he loves them, he's going to model for them this act of service. In the, uh, in the Air Force, uh, there's three core values that get drilled into us in the Air Force. Uh, one is um, you know, integrity first. The, the other one is excellence in all we do. But the second one is actually uh, service before self. And it's, a, it's, it's so funny. I mean, the idea of service before self, because really everybody is trying to promote, everybody is trying to stratify themselves, and everybody finds their identity wrapped up in what's on their shoulders or what's on their sleeve. And, and the struggle there is that the service before self core value oftentimes is not worked itself out. There was a chaplain that we had uh, in the Air Force, and he demonstrated this idea of love for others through this idea of service. His name was Chaplain Bean. Um, and Chaplain Bean was an 06, which means he was a colonel, which means he was a big deal or everybody had to think he was a big deal, okay? Like full bird colonel. And I remember when he came in, he was the joint base installation chaplain for Langley Air Force Base and Fort Eustis, which were 30 miles apart. He had offices at both places. And when he came into Langley Chapel, which was this beautiful uh, chapel built in probably 1940, it was beautiful, stained glass windows everywhere, stone built, I mean, it was, it was gorgeous. Um, his office was ornate. He had the biggest office. He had the bi- best windows, best view. And here's what he did. He said, you know, I go between two different offices and sometimes my presence here might be an interruption to ministry that's happening among the troops. He said, because when I walk out of my office, everybody comes to you know, attention and everybody salutes and everything slows down. He goes, I need to hide myself so I don't get in the way of ministry. So he took himself, he took his chief, which was an E9, and he took his admin, and they all moved into an office around the corner, and they all officed together three people. And he gave the best office away to those who were actually doing ministry. And I was so surprised because I had never seen that before. And then one, um, one it, was, it was a late night, it was late one night, we were, uh, I was leaving and I was, I was uh, going out to my car and as I'm walking out of the office, it's probably six o'clock, and I see that Chaplain Bean is in overalls and he's painting the hallway of the Christian Education Building. Like, and this is a, a full bird colonel, 30 years, but there was great humility and there was great service and that came out of a great love for others. Very seldom have I seen someone take a smaller office and share it with others. Very seldom have I seen someone late into the night painting. He was, again, he was just beginning to paint at six o'clock because he loved the people in the chapel and he wanted ministry to be done. Now, love is an action. Love will always be an action in the midst of our lives. Now, What we see here also is that in verse two, we see during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So think about this, that Judas is right there and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Here's something that we need need to watch out for. That in the midst of loving Jesus, in the midst of loving others, in the midst of self-sacrifice so that Jesus might become greater and we might become lesser, we have to be very guarded against the whispers that go into our ear. Because there will be a whisper that comes and whether it is from Satan, the flesh, or the world, this whisper will come and it will sound something like this. It's not worth it. You know, showing up to church on Sunday morning, it's not worth it. Following Jesus, it's not worth it. 
You know, giving of your time, talent, and treasure to the king of kings, it's not worth it. Is he really going to do what he says? Are his promises really valid? Are you really a child of God? And if you just listen, he will whisper, whisper, whisper in your ear. And we have to be really careful. I think we have to be really careful because what that whisper ultimately says is this, is it's not service before self, it's self before service. You have to take care of yourself. Now think about this. You know, we are only proud. I'm going to quote um, Tim Keller in the Freedom of Self Forgetfulness. We we are only proud of being more success, more successful, more intelligent, or more good looking than the next person. And when we are in the presence of someone who is more successful, intelligent, and good looking than we are, we lose all pleasure in what we had. That is because we really had no pleasure in it to begin with. Think about that. Take great delight until someone has something a little bit better than us, and then that which we had, we no longer want. And so, do we really ever have pleasure in it? And is it really about us or about the Lord? Now, this is, um, I love this story. This, this story that we see um, in verse four, Jesus, he, he rose from supper. And, and again, you know, when you think about rising from supper, um, think about this. In the ancient world, we, we, everybody has in their mind the Last Supper painting that's like the historic painting. Like, that's not true, okay? That's not how it worked. Not everybody was like on TV, you know, kind of like sitting around a table. But rather, this would have been an ancient meal where everybody was sitting on the floor, most likely. And, and I don't know if you know this or not, but they didn't have sandals on their feet. They'd take their sandals off. And I don't know if you also know this, but they would walk dusty trails. And they would walk dusty trails. And anybody who knows that if you are ever, if, you know, I grew up on a farm or next door to a farm, my grandparents' farm. And I don't know if you know this or not, you kind of got to know where you're walking all the time. The moment you look up and you're not paying attention to where you're walking, you're walking in something. And then it's going to take a long time to clean yourself up. So, the, so think about this. All of the disciples, you know, along with Jesus, come in. They're celebrating the Passover, and they're sitting, and they're sitting. And oftentimes, you're sitting, and your feet might be closer to the food. The food's on the floor. Your feet are on the floor. Your feet. Now, I want you to think about that. Your feet are nasty at this point. You know, it's somebody's job to offer water to clean feet so that your feet don't get close enough to the hummus because nobody wants to eat the dirty hummus, right? That's just the way it is. And so what Jesus does in an act of extreme humility and, in, and, and love, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, here's the deal. There's some nasty feet at that that meal, okay? Like, this is not, I mean, anybody ever gone to a wedding where they, like, wash each other's feet? Anybody? I'm just kind of curious. They used to be something that people would do. Um, I always discourage it because it's just kind of awkward. Um... But I'm here to tell you that before they do that, uh, the bride has already had a pedicure the day before, and that that groom, he ain't got much to do, really, you know, because, I mean, she doesn't want to see, like, nasty feet. Nobody wants to see it. Uh, This is not the case here. These guys, because they're guys, for one, have not been to have a pedicure ever, right? Like, so these are, and so Jesus, in this extreme point of humility, 
takes upon himself to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this is also a picture of, of redemption and the cosmic plan of redemption in this way. Jesus rises from the position of leadership. He takes off his outer garments and puts on this towel around his waist. Calvin calls him the master of the towel. And then he serves. And after he finishes serving and being self-sacrificial, he takes off the towel, puts on the outer garments, and goes back to his place of honor. That is a picture of Jesus leaving heaven and being incarnated and then serving and sacrificing for us and then being placed at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is what's going on right here in John chapter 13. But Jesus does this in such a way that is just remarkable. But, but Simon Peter doesn't get it in verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, look, Simon Peter, you're not going to understand this. I'm supposed to do this, but you're not going to understand it till later. And Peter says, well, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. I've got to wash you, Peter. I've got to wash you clean. So Peter says, well, the Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, let me explain that, I think, as best as I've seen different commentators. It's this idea that, that we are bathed in the blood of the Lamb, that we are washed clean, and that when Jesus goes to the cross for us, and he, as he's about to do for Peter and for the disciples, that we are washed and we are washed clean. And there's this Greek word, tetelestai, which means it is finished. And, and, and that would be the joy of like every, I don't know, seven-year-old boy ever, right? Like he only has to have one bath ever. Like one shower, right? I mean, I, have you ever seen like a, a seven-year-old boy shower? You know, or, or I, you could time them. It's like 1,001, 1,002, he's done. And you're like, did water touch your body? Yeah, 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 some water touched my body. Did you use soap? Well, you didn't tell me about soap. You know, you didn't tell me about the soap. You just said that I had to wash, right? But the reality is, in the midst of our justification, it is a one-time finished event. When you trust and believe in Jesus and you are declared righteous, your justification is assured and you are washed clean. But in this sense, when he says that you are, need to be washed, Lord, not only my feet, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, meaning that if you are in Christ, you have bathed, you have been justified, um, and there's no need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, that's an interesting thought there, and here's what I think, um, let, let, me, let me take uh, some privilege here. In Psalm 119, there's this passage that says, you know, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. That in the midst of living this life in this world, that we become dusty and we become dirty and attached to the things of this world. And that on a daily basis, we need to wash ourselves clean. And we wash ourselves clean through the reading of the word. We wash ourselves clean every time we come to worship and we confess our sins. We're washing ourselves clean. Now that does not get us our justification 
except for the first time where it's finished, right? But on an ongoing basis, this is our sanctification, whereby we are being molded and crafted into the image of Jesus. Like, yes, we are justified, but I'm telling you, the moment you walk outside of those doors, actually, I mean, some of you, I mean, some of you might be sinning right now, I don't know. Um, if you're thinking, like, how long is he gonna go, then that's a sin you need to repent, okay? You're dusty, the world is getting on top of you, all right? That's, that's where you are. But when we go out, we get dusty and we get dirty and we need to be cleansed. And one of the ways that we're cleansed is by confessing our sin daily. We need to be confessing our sin and confessing our attachment to the world. And not only our attachment to the world, but our love for our attachment to the world. I mean, some of you, including myself, get very distracted and and just fall in love with the things of this world. And and what's amazing is that they're not going to satisfy the deep desires of our hearts, and yet we continue to think that, yeah, maybe the next thing will. Maybe it's not this, but maybe it's what comes next. It's a, it's a very sad perspective. Now, Jesus goes on to say this in, in verse 12 of John chapter 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that that love being demonstrated is, is meant to be demonstrated through acts of service and love for one another. And that's the beauty of, of the Christian community and the Christian family. Because when, when one part of us is struggling or needy, then the rest of the body gets to surround, to encourage, and to provide. You see, one of the blessings is we actually get to give away and to serve others in the midst of you know, new babies or in the midst of difficulty and tragedy, and that we get to be a part of the family and to do that. And we get to do it tangibly, and we get to you know, essentially... Um, set aside all of our glory to serve others. And Jesus said, I have given you this model. Now, he says this um, in verse 16, that he says, truly, truly, and again, 25 places in the Gospel of John, he says, truly, truly. And when he says, truly, truly, he's saying, this is a big deal, listen to me. Truly, truly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Essentially, here's what he's saying to these disciples who had just been arguing over who's the greatest. Like, I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. Like, who's the greatest among us? And he's saying, I'm telling you that you need to serve. And if I have served you, you should be serving one another. And the model that Jesus gives us, one of self-sacrifice, and when we think about this from Romans chapter 12 in terms of how we are called to live, Romans chapter 12, let me just, I'll just read it. I appeal, Paul appealing to the Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, And what he's saying there, do not be conformed to this world, which is so selfish. 
Like, as a matter of fact, in the midst of calling ourselves to service, um, so, some of you guys are naturally gifted at service, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, some of us, like myself, are naturally gifted to be served. Um, we just love being served, right? And, and, and sometimes, those of us who love to be served, we're like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of this. I, I think I'm going to actually go home, and I'm going to do something like, I'm going to unload the dishwasher. Now, maybe you haven't unloaded the dishwasher in like, I don't know, six years. But I will tell you this, that there are some men uh, in particular who will unload the dishwasher and it is the noisiest thing that goes on in the house. And they will take it and they will rattle the dishes and they will look around and then they'll ask for help. Like, where does this go? And where does this go? And part of that is they're hoping that somebody notices that they're actually serving the family. And that in the midst of this, they're, they're, they're hurting their shoulder by patting themselves on their back. Or... It might be that you go on a service project and what you do is you go, you know, you, you break out your phone and you begin to take selfies of yourself serving others. Like hashtag selfless, hashtag look at me serving. That's so bad. That is so bad. And yet the world has captured our hearts and we want to expand and grow our ego through service. You know, like that, you know, be real. You wait around till be real so you're actually doing something that's not really real, but it looks really, really cool, right? Might, might as well be called be not real. Um, if you don't know what that is, praise the Lord. Um, although it is kind of fun sometimes. So again, I get sucked in, right? We get totally sucked in. So do not be, trans, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thessalonians says, what is the will of God? The will of God is for your sanctification. It is for you to grow in holiness, for you to become more like Jesus. Now, we see this, and this is the, the blessing that we see this as well in John chapter 13. He says, you know, look, you should do it because I'm doing it. I'm giving you a model. This is what you're called to do. I, I died on the cross for you. And now I'm calling for you to die to self and live for others. But man, it's hard. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but most of us here are pretty selfish. Two of the biggest words I think about, and they're small words, it's me and mine. You know? I always uh, joke that somebody once told me, like, there's no I in team. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a me if you look real close. You know, you can kind of work that around a little bit, right? You know, where you think about that, that Finding Nemo, um, you know, where you have that seagull in Australia, and he's just going, mine, 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 mine. And I think that that's how we live our life. Mine, 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 mine. I don't ever think we get past, like, the two-year-old room, ever. And it's a struggle. But look at what we see here. When it says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. But in verse 17, this is, this is marvelous. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's this, this wonderful truth that we are blessed. We are blessed if we actually serve rather than be served. Now, how does that blessing from heaven come about? Well, one is this. You know, when we're blessing others, it's no longer about me, me, me. It's about you, you, and them. 
we actually get the focus off of ourselves and our problems and our issues, and we begin to think about other people your troubles, your situations, your emotions. But now it becomes, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I bless others? And in so doing, rejoice. Think about that. That we, we are blessed, not by just knowing these things, but actually doing these things. You know, when we think about the idea of humility, you know, humility is a posture. It is not a feeling. It is lowering myself so that I can lift you up. That's what humility is in service. I'm lowering myself so that I can lift you up in the midst of service. When we think about you know, true gospel humility, you know, uh, again, let me quote Keller from The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says this, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I mean, that's the beauty of this idea of blessed. Blessed are you if you do it. Now, it's not just that you have intentions of service. Notice that it says, I don't think Nike got their motto from John 13, 17, but I think that we're called to work and serve. So, so here's, in terms of just trying to do this, think about this week. Now, many of you are gonna serve in VBS, praise the Lord. And so that's a really easy one for many of you because you get to serve the children. But for those of you who are, I mean, maybe for those of you who are even doing VBS, think about this. Where can I serve somebody this week? Maybe it's my wife, my spouse, my children, my neighbors. What would that look like if I actually scheduled service in my life so that I could bless others and then in turn be blessed by God because I'm not thinking about myself? Think about that. There's a, a story. I, I'll conclude with this story. Um, uh, there, there's a, a little book that I, I just finished reading. It's called uh, The Wisdom from the Bullfrog. It's not a children's book. Um, the Wisdom from the Bullfrog. Um, and this was written by a man named William McRaven, who was a vice admiral uh, with the U.S. Navy, and he was also provost of the University of Texas college system. And the bullfrog, um, if you don't know, and I didn't know this, uh, the bullfrog is the longest tenured active duty Navy SEAL. So if you're the longest tenured active duty Navy SEAL, then you are called a bullfrog. And the reason you're called a bullfrog is because they're called frogmen. That's what a Navy SEAL is. So the, the oldest one is the bullfrog, okay? So anyway, so wisdom from the bullfrog. And William McRaven um, tells this story. So he was a brand new newly minted ensign. And he was um, just off the bay of Coronado Island and then San Diego Bay. And they were doing um, small boat rapid rescue. And he was a newly minted ensign and they were doing um, different drills. And so he had just been picked up and he was, he was like, you've been snatched out of the water and he, he was you know, wet and nasty. And he goes, man, this is amazing. And he goes, I'm gonna do amazing stuff with the Navy SEALs. Newly minted, right? Like brand new, lowest, lowest officer rank there is as an ensign. And as he gets off the boat, there's a... Um, there's a, a senior, uh, a non-commissioned officer comes up to him and says, Mr. McRaven, and that's sometimes they call ensigns Mr. McRaven because they don't really like, 
Yeah, anyway, they're, they're the lowest of the low. Um, and so he says, Mr. McRaven, the skipper needs to see you. That's a, a commander in the Navy. And, Mr. and uh, William McRaven says, I can't believe the skipper needs to see me. I didn't think he knew my name. I hope I'm not in trouble. And so he says, well, let me go change into my khakis. And, and the uh, non-commissioned officer says, no, there's no time. You need to come right now. The skipper needs to see you right now. So they jump into a Jeep. And as he's driving there, he's taking off his wetsuit. He's tucking his blue and gold uh, shirt into his, um, into his, into his shorts. And, and as he's like combing over his hair, he begins to think. And he goes, you know what? I've been training really hard. Maybe I've made, maybe he's going to send me on a mission. He goes, at that time, it was 1978. He was thinking, maybe I'm going to go um, to the Baltics. Maybe, you know, we need to snatch a terrorist. Maybe we need to blow up something. Maybe we need to rescue somebody. Maybe we're going to go, you know, like, defuse a missile in North Korea. He had all of these thoughts going through his mind. And he walks into um, the uh, underwater demolition team 11 into their um, commander's base, you know. And so he walks in and he sees all these pictures of all these Vietnam era SEALs and all the things that they've done and they're all around. And he's thinking, this has got to be it. He's going to send me on a mission. I'm going to get to go on a mission. And so the, the skipper, the commanding officer, calls him in. And, and so he comes in, and he comes to attention, and he goes, uh, Ensign McRaven, sir, Ensign McRaven reporting, sir. And he says it too loud and a little too proud. And he says the commanding officer looks up, gives him a smirk, and says, at ease, Mr. McRaven. So he goes from being at attention to going to uh, parade rest, and he just says, I've got a job for you, Mr. McRaven. And he goes, yes, sir. And he, and he knows he's going to be sent on a mission. He knows it. And uh, the skipper tells him, he goes, the, the Commodore, who's in charge of all the Navy SEALs on the West Coast, came to me and he asked me, who is your best ensign? And I said, it is William McRaven. And so William McRaven bows up a little bit. He goes, man, I didn't know I had made this bigger impression. And, it, and the Commodore has a job for you. And it's an important job. And if it's important for me, it's important for you. And he goes, yes, sir. And he goes, it's been a few years since we were in the uh, 4th of July parade at Coronado Island. And he goes, Sir? And he goes, the Commodore wants a big green frog float to be built. And that big green frog float needs to have like a cigar out of his mouth and a piece of dynamite. And I want that frog float to be really good. And I'm putting you in charge of the frog float. Sir, he goes, you're building a frog float for the 4th of July parade, Mr. McRaven. And he goes, the supply officer has everything that you need. So you can just go on out. That is all. Have a good day. So he turns around and he walks out and he walks out completely dejected. He walks out dejected and he goes to change because at this point he's still salty and nasty and he goes and he sits down and there's a, um, a master chief that comes alongside him and he says, um, this master chief knows that Mr. McRaven or Ensign McRaven is um, dejected and so this, this master chief who's been in 30 years and been in more fights and more firefights than, than, than uh, William McRaven has ever seen, you know, he's the epitome of what a seal was, sits next to him and says, Mr. McRaven, what's wrong? And he goes, and he goes, at that point, I felt like I was in a confessional. So I just started talking to the master chief. And I said, Skipper wants me to build a frog float for the 4th of July parade. And at that point, the master chief looks at him and says, and you want to jump out of planes, and you want to blow stuff up, and you want to, you want to protect America, and you want to do amazing things, don't you? And he goes, absolutely, that was what I've been training for. And he said it too loud, and he said it too proud. And he says, Mr. McRaven, at some point in your life, and for the rest of your life here in the Navy, you're going to be building frog floats of one kind or another. And it's being faithful in the little things. And so there's just one option for you, Mr. McRaven. Even though um, at this point, this Master Chief was you know, lower in rank than Ensign, but, he, but not really, sort of. Um, he says, you have to build the best dang, and I say dang, uh, frog float the Navy has ever seen. 
He goes, what? He goes, you build the best dang frog float the unit has ever seen. And he goes, that's what I got to do. I got to build the best frog float I can ever do. You see, he had been trained. He, he was at the top of his game. And yet he was called to humility. He said, I serve through humility. And what happened was that his frog float won first prize in the Coronado Fourth of July Parade. And the picture of that frog float hung in the UDT commander's headquarters for about two decades. And it was a picture of humility. Now, the picture that we have that is far greater in humility is the picture of Jesus shedding his glory and coming down to die for us so that we might live. You see, when we come to this table, this bread represents his body broken for us. Think about this, that the Lord of glory would descend and put on human flesh and then go through death on the cross. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he does this as an act of love. And the act of love worked itself out in great humility. Because Jesus loved, he lowered himself so that we might be lifted up. In 1 Corinthians, we read about um, what Paul says about the table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after, after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel in front of us. That we get to live because he died for us. We get to be raised up because he lowered himself so that we might be raised up. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord. And if you trust and believe, then you are welcome. If you are not sure about Jesus, if you are not sure about who he is or what he has done, come talk to an elder up here. We have several elders up here every week that can pray for you and explain what the gospel is. That the gospel is one of trusting and believing. And then after trusting and believing, then we go out to serve and to love. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would set apart these elements from their common use. Father, they will always remain bread and this will always remain juice, but Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would pour forth grace upon grace upon your people and that we would trust and believe all the more as we delight and dine upon this appetizer of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Father, we long for the day when Jesus will return and put all things right but until that day, Father, as we commune with each other, as we commune with you, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, come. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.